edition of the Alonzo Fed. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we are coming to you tonight with a episode that is jam-packed with information, details about the sports world happening around us. Uh, Sam, why don't you take us through the exciting content we have planned for this episode? Yeah, sorry we missed you guys last week. You know, it was a little holiday break for both of us, but a lot happened in the baseball world while we were gone. Most notably, the Padres are, they're going for it. And, you know, not that we'd expect anything else out of, out of AJ Preller, but we're going to, we're going to take you through all of those Padres moves, talk about whether we like them or not for both sides. And before you have to ask everybody, we will answer the question on everybody's mind, which is, is it enough? Is it enough to beat the Diamondbacks in the NL West this season? (laughs) We'll, ad- we'll address that question because I know everyone's asking it. Yeah, and then there, there are a couple more baseball moves we're going to discuss. But then also uh, next week is the start of the NFL playoffs. So we're going to be doing an NFL playoff preview, give you guys our prediction going throughout the entire bracket, who we think is going to win the Super Bowl. Uh, the NBA season is also in full swing, but we already have so much content. We want to get to you guys that we're going to push back any early season discussion of the NBA until next week. And we're going to give you some of our early thoughts for the season But with that. Let's just jump into, you know, usually we save baseball for last. We're kicking this thing off with baseball today. Let's talk about the Padres. What, yeah, what we're finally, we're finally giving you guys the headline at the top of the show. And the headline around baseball right now, as Sam mentioned, is the Padres just made an absolute ruckus. So let's start with what was likely the simplest deal for them, which is the signing of Ha Sing Kam, <laughs> Ha Siang Kim, I, I'm so sorry, um, from the KBO for four years, $28 million. They signed him straight from the Kaiwum Heroes. Um, this is a guy who's a 25-year-old infielder, played a lot of shortstop, played some third base in Korea, um, and has somehow, at 25, already been playing for seven years, his rookie year being in 2014, when he was 18 years old. Um, so a lot of experience at the professional level. Obviously, like, this is a little confusing not because he's not a good player like this guy had a 306 batting average 397 obp 523 slugging last year good for a 920 ops like you know korea is a very hitter friendly league but that this is these are good numbers for a young guy who you could see improving so no question like why a team would want to sign him but the question is the padres already have machado Tatis Jr., Cronenworth, Hosmer around the infield. So he's either like a backup utility player, which is fine, except for this is a very expensive backup utility player on your team for your 28 mil. Or you're going to try and throw him in the outfield, which is they must have some information that he can play outfield. So while I like the signing because I like the potential of this player, um, I'm kind of confused where he fits into the Padres rotation. I, I agree. The fits a bit confusing as far as to where he might end up. What I was reading is that he might end up at second and they might try Cronenworth in the outfield, um, oh, which might make sense. He seemed yeah. to be a versatile player last season, but, but, you know, I think what, what good teams do is they 
assemble a lot of good players and worry a little less about fit, especially when these players are defensively versatile. I mean, this is something the Dodgers have made a living off of for the last five years. So, you know, right. I do pot- want to point out that you're, you're obviously correct, Sam, but it is a recent phenomenon. It did not used to be this way that teams were like, let's just get a bunch of young athletic players who have fire and, and good skills and put them everywhere. This is new, but it's clearly the way to win today. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and really, I mean, I'd sort of started, I'd say, with with what uh, with what the Cubs were doing when mm-hmm. when they had their sort of their young their young guys in Baez and and using Chris Bryant in the outfield. I mean, and obviously, Addison the Padres, Russell was still yeah, a big prospect who was a good hitter at that time. Yeah, um, but yeah, so I mean, I think you know, while you said we were going to start with the big one, I, I feel like we we buried the lead a little here, which is that. But, well, well, we started with we started with the Padres, and then I said let's let's ease into it because these are bombshells. You don't just drop into the episode and drop two big bombshells on them. So, which there's two trades for everybody who hasn't been watching. The Pods make two big trades. Sam, which one got your attention more? Well, let's let's go in chronological order of the trades because because the first one to hit was Blake Snow. Okay. Um, and I, I think there's more, I, I mean, I, I find both trades to be very interesting, but I think there's a little more to dissect with the Blake Snell trade. Uh, I don't know if you agree. I do because you can sum up the, the other trade in, in two lines, which we'll get to, but yeah. let's talk about the Blake Snell trade. Okay. So, so the, the Padres traded, uh, for Blake Snell, the, the, the Rays in return for Blake Snell received uh, a treasure trove of prospects in Luis Patino, Blake Hunt, Cole Wilcox, and Francesco Mejia. And so, this is three years of Blake Snell, by the way, at 10 million AAV. So incredibly good value for a guy who has amassed 4.8 war in his career, 2.7 war in his career, and would have amassed much more than that if he had been able to stay healthy. Yeah, so I I think before we discuss sort of what we view the of the trade, let's maybe discuss like what we view Blake Snell to be, because you know what you know what your evaluation of the trade is is going to rely a lot on that. So what? It's a good point. What is your take on Blake Snell? Is he an ace? Is he a good number two? What is he to you? So my evaluation of Blake Snell is that when he's healthy, he's a true ace. But I have serious, serious concerns about his ability to take on a workload. He has never pitched more than 181 innings in a season. And he has only broken 103 of five times. Now, given 2020 maybe isn't fair because it was such a weird season. But even in 2020, he was being uh, moderated, let's say, a little bit. This is a guy where longevity concerns are are extremely prevalent. So do I view him as an ace when he's on the hill and he's pitching his game? Absolutely, I view him as an ace. As a trading partner, I'm giving him the same value as a very, very high-end number two. I'm giving him the value as a trading partner of somebody who is a top five, number two in the league. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think I mostly agree with you, which is that I, I don't think Blake Snell is a top 10 pitcher in baseball. And I think he's probably oh, no. not. But to be an ace, you only need to be like top 25 pitcher in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think he's top 15, maybe, you know, the bottom of the top 20s or something. And, and I think it's for a lot of the same reasons that you get to, which is that he's not in innings either. Um, and that's really going to depress your value as, as a starting pitcher. If you're, I mean, I, he, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure he didn't throw six innings once last season, not even once. No, I mean, he did not, but that was partially the Rays get new game plan for him. I mean, that that's, wanted to, that was partially related to how the Rays used him. And we know the Rays are very aggressive with taking their pitchers out. But then again, the Rays had no issue pushing a guy like Tyler Glass now. So they clearly had a read on him, which is that they didn't think he was going to continue to be effective when he was used deeper yeah. into the games. You know, it's not like the Rays are just totally against pushing a pitcher further, you know. And, you know, obviously this was a subject of big debate when he was taken out of out of the World Series game. Uh but, you know, I, I do think that our evaluation of Blake Snell is a bit tampered by his 2018 Cy Young season, where, of course, he was absolutely amazing that season. He had a 1.9 ERA, but he was a very lucky pitcher that year. If you look at his expected ERA on Baseball Savant, it was 303, you know, still a great season, but mm -hmm. not anything close to the type of guy you imagine winning a Cy Young. And, and that's where I fall on him, which is that I think he's going, you know, and maybe now we could talk about, you know, what we see out of this move on both sides, you know. I, I just want to, I just want to say, Sam, to your point, for his career, OPS against first time through the lineup is 592. Second time through the lineup is 7-11. And his strikeout to walk ratio is dropping a point each time. And then last time through, it's 7-42. And his strikeout to walk ratio drops by another half a point. So he clearly, throughout his career, has been decreasingly effective as he sees batters more often. So, so let's talk about then, before we talk about the fit on the Padres... What do you think of the Rays' decision to trade him? Well, you know, and I, I've mentioned this to some other people who, you know, follow baseball. <coughs> Excuse me. Who follow baseball and who were like, I hate this. Like, the Rays just went to the World Series. They just traded, you know, arguably their ace because it kind of looks like that from the outside, even though I really think Glass now was their go-to guy um, in the playoffs last season. Um, I hate this. And I explain what I'm about to explain now, which is that this is what a team like the Rays absolutely has to do to continue winning. It sucks because they don't get to keep these guys that they grow and they develop. But for the Rays to continue winning long term and sustain the type of success they've had in the market that they've had, Tampa Bay basically has tried to kick them out of Tampa Bay. Like they make no money. No one comes to their games. And the only way to maintain that success is to trade players at the peak of their value and sign undervalued players. And we see them do it time and time again. So will Blake Snell increase in value next season? Maybe a little bit, but he'll lose that same amount of value by losing a year of controllability. 
So the Rays are looking at him. They're looking at three years as a big chunk of controllable time coming off of a season where he was pretty good and underlying metrics liked him even better and had no serious injury concerns because they kind of monitored him well. He was out for a bit of time, but it wasn't a huge deal like it was in some previous seasons. And they say, now's the time. And they look at this at this um, haul that they get back, which we haven't even talked about, but they're looking at Luis Patino, who's a top 25 prospect, 21 years old, and kind of grades out to be potentially an 80-grade starting pitcher. They're looking at um, Cole Wilcox, who was a third-round pick by the Padres, but only because teams did not think it was possible to sign him. They thought it was 100% impossible to sign him, and he dropped only to the third round. Normally, those guys can drop as low as five or six. So the Rays see him as a true first-rounder out of Georgia, a 6'5 righty weighing in at 230. Like, this guy's a beast, and all of his scouting reports are massive. They get Blake Hunt, who is a top 50 prospect in the Padres stacked organization and continues to be a top 50 prospect in the Rays stacked organization. And then they get like a couple, you know, random flyer. Well, one random flyer in Francisco Mejia, who is kind of washed up. But if anyone can bring him back, I guess it's the Rays. So, you know, I look at this. And I say, it sucks because the Rays should be able to keep him. They should make another run for it next season. But then I'm realistic and I say, they'll still probably make the playoffs and they'll be in a position to win even more in two or three years. Yeah. And I, I basically totally agree with, with your take. I, I think, I think it was really well said. Um, and, and I, like you said, they got a monster haul back. I mean, you said Patino is a top 25 prospect. Some lists have him as high as top 10. And when you get guys like Patino, guys like Wilcox with this really plus plus stuff, you got to grade it even higher in the Rays organization because of what this organization has proved they can do with these types of prospects, the way they can develop pitching. So when you value these, you know, elite prospect arms even more in their own organization. So that's for a, all that's these re- a great points yeah. is like, they just know that they can get value out of somebody with good stuff. Even if it's like a two batter value or whatever, well, I guess three now because of the rule, but even if it's just like minimum plate appearance value, they can get some value out of a guy with good stuff. And that's, that's worth something. Yeah. So, you know, for all those reasons, you know, from a competitive standpoint, I don't hate the trade for the Rays. But like you said, you know, it, it really is a shame that the organization has to keep functioning this way and that they're incentivized to do so because, you know, part of being a fan, is, and, and I, I saw someone tweet this take, I, and I forget who it was, so sorry for, for not crediting you, but part of being a fan is rooting for your team to win. But a, another almost equally important part of being a fan is developing some emotional connection Uh, to the players that play for your favorite team, uh, watching them get better, watching them become part of success. I mean, that's a huge part of fandom. And it really feels like the Rays operate only for the first part. And it's maybe that's partially responsible for, you know, the lack of continuing fandom they have as a team. I mean, I think it's probably not. I think it's mostly just the market. Yeah, it's a chicken and an egg situation. It's kind of hard to say. But you know, it's not it's not fun when your favorite player gets triggered every three years. Uh, but you know, for all, for all that said, I think most fans would trade you know annual trips to the ALCS and World Series for you know a connection with the players on the team. So right, 
and they they still legitimately have a chance to make the ALCS next year. Like you look at their team, and you kind of say, okay, their roster is not quite as good as it was last year, but we thought it wasn't quite as good as it was two years ago last year, and they made the World Series. So they find ways to win, and you have to expect that they'll continue to do it unless they prove otherwise. Um, but again, the Padres here clean up, and that's kind of a, a recurring theme here. Um, they have the depth to get rid of guys like Patino and especially Cole Wilcox, who just came out of college, and they really don't know. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really crucial point because, you know, we talked about this from the race perspective. Maybe let's talk about it a little from the Padres perspective, although I think we'll maybe delve deeper into the Padres perspective from like a, a more global perspective of all the trades together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the reason the Padres are able to trade guys like Patino and, and Wilcox and, you know, th- these other prospects is because they have, you know, one of the two, three best farm systems in baseball. So they can trade from this depth and still have, you know, the pieces in their farm system to, to, to stay stocked and stay competing from the, for the future. I mean, they traded away Patino, who's one of the best pitching prospects in the game, and they still have Mackenzie Gore, who's arguably the best pitching prospect in the right. game. So, you know, that, that's the crucial point here is that the Padres are in the position with major league talent that they could go get more major league talent and contend to be one of the best teams in baseball, but they can do it without totally destroying their future in terms of their farm system. And again, this is the formula for winning that has been set forth by the Rays, by the Astros, by the Dodgers. You draft well, you develop players, you find value that other people are missing to build up a major league competitive roster and a strong farm system And then when your window is there, you use the farm system to make your team a powerhouse. That's just the way it's done right now. And the Padres are following that playbook to a T. Now we'll get, we'll get to them in a second, but it's their job is not totally done in my opinion. So the other trade that they made, which is just insane for them. um, The Padres get you Darvish arguably the deserving Cy Young winner of last year. Um, I wouldn't argue it, but many people could. And Victor Caratini, who's his personal catcher, and also just like a solid backup catcher to have, especially on a team that has started so many dunces at catcher between um, Barnes and – or not Barnes. I always mix them up. They have the other Austin. Um, they found some success uh, last season, but they, they've had trouble catcher. So they get Victor Caratini and the Cubs in return basically get nothing. They get Zach Davies and they get four minor leaguers, some of whom have good upside, but none of them were rated top 25 in the Padres system. Like these were not necessarily good prospects. They're all like mid-level prospects. They're all in that 50 to 25 range. Um, and this is just, plain and simple, a salary dump for the Cubs. And you want to talk about being frustrated as a fan. Think about Cubs fans who already have such a short fuse. They already forgot that they won the World Series in 2016 after a 108-year drought. Now, you know, they're looking at this. They're saying, we messed with Chris Bryant so hard to get this extra year of control. We went all in. We played, you know, we moved all of these prospects. We lost guys. And now, like, we're just giving away the best pitcher we've had on this team since John Lester's ace hood. Like, 
they have to be so frustrated here to see management do this. And I guess this is the start of the Jed Hoyer era. I guess Jed's looking at this team and he's saying, well, you know, Theo took him to the brink. He did what he could to stay competitive, but this is a new era and I can't win with this roster, which I, by the way, uh, I actually agree with. I, I just don't see any way that the Cubs could win with their roster as currently constructed. And maybe, you know, TD Ameritrade or whoever owns them um, is not giving them any more money. And so uh, we have to find another way to win. So we have to trade away players. But the question for the Cubs is how did they not get a bigger haul than this? Yeah. I mean, how I, is there nobody out there with a bigger haul than this? So, yeah, let, let, let's be clear. You Darvish is the better of the two pitchers that the Padres acquired. Um, since the 2019 all-star break, the only players with a higher pitching war are Jacob deGrom, Garrett Cole, and Shane Bieber. I mean, we're, we're talking about a guy who's been a top five pitcher in baseball since the all-star break in 2019. A we're guy talking who, about a guy who amassed 30 war in 12 starts last season. Th- or, sorry, three, three war. war. <laughs> 30 yeah. divided by 10 war in 12 <laughs> starts last season. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who is, you know, he's a true ace uh in the league right now and like you said i mean they got some they got some prospects to restock their system but it's not like any of them are like top 100 prospects in the league maybe maybe towards the bottom of that and they yeah it's just a pure salary dump and what i'm wondering is were they not shopping you darvish around how how get a team like the yankees or you know I would say the Mets, but the Mets don't have much of a farm system to trade from. Like, how does a team that's looking to contend that's in need of starting pitching not beat this offer for one of the top five to 10 pitchers in baseball? 21 and a half million AAV is a lot, which is what he's owed for the next three seasons. But it's not that much, especially considering the way we've seen contracts go. Like, Bauer is going to get more than 21 and a half million AAV this year. So if you think that you Darvish is as good a pitcher as Trevor Bauer is, which I think he's a no brainer in my mind. He's I think he's a better, I think he's Bauer. a better pitcher. Yeah. Right. Um, then you have to think this actually, I, it sounds expensive, but it's not bad. And to think that the Yankees even, well, I guess the Red Sox don't really have anybody, but like the Cardinals, um, even the Dodgers, as crazy as it sounds after his weird stint there, like it's so it's so mind boggling to me that there was no better deal than Zach Davies and four borderline prospects. Yeah. And, and I'll, you know, I'll actually go further than you did in terms of bashing the Cubs here, because I actually think that while the the cub this cubs core that won the world series is nearing its end it's not time to blow it up yet and they really you know they really had one more year to go for it and maybe it doesn't work out but the way the baseball playoffs work that team's talented enough to sneak into the playoffs and then if you sneak into the playoffs anything can happen yeah, so, i agree I agree. So, you know, I, when, when that's still a possibility, I don't think it's time to blow up the core yet. And, you know, it's, it's one thing to blow up the core if you're getting some massive prospect haul, but that's not what's happening. Like you said, it's a pure salary dump. It's, it's despicable operating by, by the Rickets. 
I don't think it's Jed Hoyer doing this. I think this is coming down from ownership that they're trying to you cut think? costs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a joke. And, it, and if I was a Cubs fan, I'd be furious. I, in fact, I know a couple and I know they are furious. Right. And I mean, yeah, I, I guess we've said it all. But just the only thing that makes sense, the only way I can rationalize this, is that the Cubs felt they absolutely needed to go out and get Zach Davies so that they could have the only rotation in baseball with three starters who can't touch 88. <laughs> I figured if they can throw Kyle Hendricks, Zach Davies, Alec Mills back to back to back, it, I mean, they could potentially go a full series without a batter seeing a pitch uh, touch 90 miles an hour. And the op- that opportunity is hard to pass up. So I, I, I guess that's a possible reason for why they might have gone out and done this. Um, but outside of that, I really, I really can't understand it. So let's just, now that we've done all this and I, you know, we could talk about Francisco Mejia, but we, I think we talked about him before it's, it's kind of a throw in. Let's talk about the Padres as a, as a whole here. So the Padres add a, a Korean infielder who's, Profiles out to be a productive MLB player, probably not an all-star, you know, not a star, but a guy who could easily amass, you know, one and a half, two war um, playing 115 games or something, um, just bouncing around the field and mixing in with rotations they have. Um, so I think they pay a lot for him for what he kind of seems like he fits, but they get a guy who's good. And if they're going to pay the money good for them, they get you Darvish, who's, you know, arguably top five for sure, top 10 pitcher in baseball. And they get Blake Snell, who is, as we mentioned, definitely a top 20 pitcher in baseball, potentially um, a top 15 pitcher in baseball. But there's some concerns there. But either way, now their rotation looks like you, Darvish, Blake Snell, Chris Paddock, Denilson Lamette, and I don't know, whoever they want to throw fifth. And and Mackenzie Gore, who's potentially the number one prospect in baseball, or Joey Lucchese, who was pretty good right. before he was injured last year. And let's not forget that they still have Mike Clevenger, who's going to be out this season oh my uh, God. with Tommy John, but he's still going to be in their organization. So let's think about their their rotation in 2022. Right. I mean, and, and they still have a bunch of um, like position players coming up through the system. Like, this is a team, and by the way, they have Snell and Hugh Darvish through 2023. So this is a team who is going to be incredibly competitive for the next three seasons. I think they see this as their time to go out and win the first championship that San Diego's ever had in baseball. The Padres is number one. And so this is an opportunity for them to go out there um, and bring it home. I think that they've done a lot of the things they needed to. They addressed the most glaring weakness, which was their pitching. But for me, their outfield, and we've seen this with the Indians, who who never had quite as good an infield, but at one time was sporting a very, very strong infield of Jose Ramirez, Francisco Lindor, Edwin Encarnacion. And, and Kipnis. And Kipnis. It's hard to win when your offensive production from your outfield is literally zero. Well, but Will Myers, you know, the question is, does he stay? Well, the question is not just does he stay. The question is, is he good? Because I get that he was good last year. But please do not forget 
that he has had some very average seasons. He has been at 96, 107 the two years before that, 115 and 114 in terms of WRC plus. Really, 2020 is the best season he's ever had. Um, That's fair. Is, is he good? I don't know. Um, never amassed more than three and a half four in a season. And he only did that one. So outside of Will Myers, like I truly believe that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be this season. Cause I think they can be super competitive this season and see how some of their young players develop. But if they want to win a world series and they want to really make a push, they need an outfielder, whether they get him at the deadline, whether they, they pick him up, sign him, develop him, they need to improve their outfielder. It's going to be really, really difficult for them to win. So, I, I mean, I, I assume you still consider the Dodgers the best team in baseball. Do you have the Padres as the number two team now? I don't. Who you have above them? Um, I have the Yankees above them still. I see. I mean, I, I, I'm going with the Padres because, I mean, I think they, they arguably have the best starting rotation in baseball. They have the best left side of the infield in baseball. Their bullpen looks good. I mean, I, I think it's the Padres. And, I, and one interesting dynamic here is that, well, let's just say for the sake of argument that they are the second best team in baseball. Well, now the two best teams in baseball are in the NL West. And we don't know yet what the playoff structure is going to look like. So it, it's possible. If there's a three-game three series for a wild card, one of them could easily lose it. Well, I mean, it's possible that there's still going to be a one-game playoff for a wild card, right? Oh, that's true. So, I mean, it, it's possible that, I, you know, either, I mean, if there is a one-game playoff, then either the Dodgers or Padres will be in a one-game playoff <laughs> for, you know, they get into the playoffs, which is, which is that's, that's pretty, pretty insane to think about. Just flip a coin, right? Like, if you think about it in terms of betting odds, like this last week, you look at underdogs in football, like some teams were like the favorite was minus 400 and the underdog was like plus 600. You'll never, ever see a baseball game go above like plus 215. And you really never even see that like plus 160 minus 155 or something uh, minus 185. So like, it's really almost a flip of a coin at that point, no matter who they play. And yeah, I mean, it's a flaw, but it's also a feature, I think, of just baseball as a sport. Yeah. Um, so any any last words on the Padres before we move on? Just uh, good luck facing those fearsome snakes in the NL West. Yeah. If it's not clear, Sam certainly thinks that they've done enough to uh, overtake them. I think they're still looking good for third place behind the snakes and Dodgers in that order. Um, so we'll just have to see how the NLS shakes out. Let's, let's just go back to the Rays here because they made another move, not nearly as big. Um, but the, they do move Jose Alvarado. Who's only 26 years old, has one of the nastiest two seamers in baseball, 99 with unbelievable bite. And somehow this becomes a three team trade where, uh, Jose Alvarado goes to the Phillies and immediately becomes like their best reliever. They had the worst bullpen almost in the history of baseball last season. Um, and so Alvarado is, is desperately needed there. Um, the Rays get back Dylan Paulson from the Dodgers, who's kind of a low level first base type prospect. Um, and then the Dodgers somehow pry away Garrett Clevenger from the Phillies, who's a fairly well-regarded, um, pitching prospect, you know, not crazy. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a reliever, but I mean, he has good stuff. 
Yeah, he has good stuff, and he's had some success in the minors in the past. Um, and so it's not a, you know, nothing crazy. But again, this is a move where normally I'd be like, this is kind of weird. Like, why would a team give up a good reliever for a guy who, like, doesn't grade out that well as a prospect? But when the Rays do it, I'm just like, this must be it. They either know that Alvarado is being overrated in the market right now, or they believe that um, the Dodgers are not understanding Dylan Paulson as a hitter. So they're going to make him, you know, the next Babe Ruth. What I don't get is like, why are the Phillies giving up Clevenger for Alvarado? Who's like a good reliever, but he's not elite. And like, why, how do you even, why are you giving up like, four years of control relative between these two relievers for like, you know, not even a clear upgrade. Like Clevenger could just be a really good reliever. Well, I think it's a clear upgrade because you know what Alvarado is and and you're trying to project Clevenger, but I do understand the basis of the question. And the answer is so, so simple, Sam, is that the Phillies maybe more so than any other team have a clear operating principle when it comes to fortifying their bullpen. They do the same thing every year freak out and just sign whoever is available to them and assume that it is an upgrade over the trash that they have in their bullpen. Um, They've done this year after year since about 2018 um, with very expected results. Their bullpen has been bad consistently. They've hung on to Hector Neris, believing that he's the guy that they've developed as, as a true closer. And then they've surrounded him with guys who were just there. They were just available. And I think this is another great example of that. So kudos to the Phillies for sticking to their game plan. Um, now, the last trade here is extremely interesting in my mind. The Nats go out and get Josh Bell in return for Will Crow and Eddie Yon. Yon immediately becomes Pittsburgh's seventh best prospect. So clearly good for their farm system. Um, clearly bad for the Nats who don't have a huge farm system in terms of maintaining that depth. Um, and Will Crow, who's like a minor leaguer, but like pretty much major league ready talent as a pitcher. Um, but the big haul here is Jan. And I think that of all the trades, this one's probably the most balanced. I mean, the Nats are only getting one year of Josh Bell. Um, and he's arbitration eligible in 2022. So, you know, maybe they'll get another year of him going into 2023. Um, but you know, they get a guy who don't forget the first half of 2019, he was arguably the best hitter in baseball. So for half a season, he showed that he is an elite hitter. The problem is in the second half, he looked a lot more like the hitter he's been in the rest of his career, which is basically 110 WRC plus. So his other WRC pluses are 112, 108, 111. He's a switch hitter, uh, which has a lot of value in PNC and a little bit less value um, in the Nats park, but he's, you know, not a good defender by any stretch of the imagination. But at the end of the day, he's he's a good option for them at first base. He's better than Ryan Zimmerman's been in years. He's better than Eric Timms when they went out and got Eric Timms. He's a different hitter altogether than Howie Kendrick, but Howie Kendrick shouldn't have ever been on the field. He, he needed a wheelchair by the end of his stint there. So it makes sense to protect Trey Turner and, and Juan Soto. They give up value, but not crazy value, not uh, incompatible, I think. Um, so I think it's even all around and it just kind of makes sense. 
I mean, one thing, though, that you left out, which is that, you know, of course, he had this incredible, incredible first half of 2019 and then came back down to earth in the second half. But then you didn't discuss what happened in 2020, which was that he had the worst season of his career. He walked less than he ever has before. He struck out way more than he ever has before, where his previous, you know, career strikeout rate hovered around 18, 19 percent. And he struck out 27 percent of the time last year. Uh he hit for less power. Um, it, it was a disaster of a season. He had a 78 WRC plus and minus 0.4 war. So, yeah. you know, it's not as if he's only a half year removed from being an, an elite hitter. And then that half year was him being average. He's a year and a half removed from being a, an elite hitter. And it was half a year of being a little above average and a full year of being unplayably bad. So, yeah. You know, that doesn't mean I think he's not worth a flyer because, you know, he still showed he can be that hitter. And I do still think that he he still hit the ball hard last year. His average exit velocity was in the 87th percentile. Uh, he still walked a decent amount of time, 61st percentile walk rate. I think the difference between the, the past two years is that in 2019, for the first time in his career, he finally started hitting the ball in the air. I mean, his launch angle, what 2016 was 6.4, 8.6 in 2017, 9.5 in 2018. It got up to 12.9 in 2019. And then we see a major crater to 5.9 in 2020. So after year after year of getting more and more lofting a swing, using that power to get the ball in the air, suddenly it's not happening anymore. So the question is, what did he change about his approach, about his swing, that made him stop hitting the ball in the air? And can he recapture that magic of 2019 by going back to that approach? So you're gonna you're gonna hate this, but I, I've heard Josh Bell speak, and and I've read a, a bit about him. My feeling is that I'm not gonna say he's a nutcase, but he's a very heady player who puts a lot of pressure on himself. Um, I really see 2020 for him. It's just like his XWOBA for his career has like been fairly consistent, hovering between 375 and 350. And like for him to crater like this in such a weird season, like where the Pirates were so unspeakably bad, like they weren't even fun to watch. Like they were kind of fun in 2019, even though they were bad, but like they were so bad in 2020. I'm super willing to chalk this up to like a mental either checkout or like so much pressure to re reach 2019 and then not enough time to adjust to it. So it's obviously not a good sign. I'm not saying that like, this means absolutely nothing. It means something. Um, but I, I never thought that he was the type of like superstar all around player. Who's going to make adjustments on the fly and maintain like his status as an elite hitter. I see him as a guy who's going to be solid, like 110 to 115 WRC plus with stretches of being very, very good. Um, and this doesn't really change that for me. So I think you bring up a good point. There is significantly more uncertainty here than there would have been last year. But I, at least looking if I were going to sign him, am more ready to overlook those things and still think that the return was, was fairly fair. Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree. I certainly think it's it's worth a flyer from the Nats perspective where first base has been not a good position for them like for a while, bad. like yeah. even in their World Series year. Um, 
So, so any, any lingering thoughts on, on baseball or should we move to our NFL postseason preview? I was just like, so I'll be honest this week. I didn't watch any NFL and it was just because I was so disheartened. You know, I went to turn it on because there were all these like, and I was working too. So I had other things on my mind, but there were, there were like all these games with playoff implications. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the the playoff picture in a second, but like the Washington football team needed to win to get in and the giants um, and the Cowboys could have forced something if they'd won the Cardinals needed to win to get in, like the Dolphins needed a win. And I just couldn't bring myself to turn it on. Cause I was just like, I don't care that much. Like it's fun to watch, but I just don't care that much about football. And I was like, I need <laughs> baseball back. I need baseball on the television because if you were telling me playoff baseball was on, I would drop everything to watch it. So just that, you know, if you're sitting at home, like, all right, other sports are great. They're fun to watch. And like, I can get into them, you know, especially with fantasy or with all the other stuff going on, but I need baseball back. Just know we're sitting here and we are thinking the same thing. So we, we will be counting down the days till pitchers and catchers report in the spring. But with that, as we right, mentioned, I, I just want to say, while I, oh, I certainly, yeah. I certainly love baseball. I, I love it more than anything. I'm I'm more of a generalist than you in that I true, I think I think I can enjoy the NFL and especially the NBA uh, more than I enjoy most. The NBA you know, quite a lot. Know. Yeah, I I won't miss the NBA playoffs. I promise you that. Um, but with that, let's let's talk about what happened in Week 17. As Aaron mentioned, this was maybe one of the more chaotic Week 17s that we we had on tap in a long time, where there were still uh, I think there were only. Uh, three teams in the AFC that had already clinched a playoff spot. So the Titans, the Ravens, the Browns, and the Dolphins were all able to clinch playoff spots with a win. The Colts needed to win and just have one of those teams lose. And what ended up happening is all of those teams won, except the Miami Dolphins, who got absolutely shellacked by the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Ryan Fitzmagic... Well, he had COVID, so he couldn't play. Uh, Um, And I'll tell you what, I I didn't expect to be saying this, but Tua Tonga-Vailoa sucks. I mean, give the kid a break. Like, that's a huge get. I also think it's insane that they played him as much because they probably wouldn't have even been here if they had just played Fitzmagic. Don't forget about that game that Fitzmagic almost led them back in the final seconds where they were like, oh, shoot, actually, Ryan, Ryan Fitzpatrick's our best chance to win. And then they put him in, even though I mean, and this, this happened multiple weeks. He, he right. actually did lead them back twice. I right. mean, it's, it's in, they probably would not have been there if they just played Fitzpatrick because he's not quite ready. So I, I'm going to hold off on saying Tua Tonga-Vailoa sucks. I think that's a little strong. Just a little bit. I mean, the offense cannot. It basically was non-functioning with him at the helm, and it was very, very functioning with Ryan Fitzpatrick at the helm. And you know, He's maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe this is maybe the system just wasn't right for Tua. Um, who Tua is a guy who likes to take shots down. Who in college? But here's what's so weird about it: in college, Tua is a guy who took shots downfield. And, you know, made things happen, made incredible plays. And he just played so, 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 so conservatively 
with the Dolphins this year, it's it's hard to to understand what's happening. And you know, the question is, is he the same player after this injury? I know they say he's fully healthy, but he just do- has not looked like the same guy that he was at Alabama. Yeah, and I think the injury concern is reasonable. But to me, what you described there actually like tracks perfectly with my idea of what it's like to be a young guy in the league with like first round draft pick tied to you, right? Like he used to be this big playmaker, take big shots down the field because he was put into that system at Alabama, but he comes into the Dolphins organization and they're probably telling him, don't turn the ball over, right? That's the number one thing as a quarterback, don't turn the ball over. And he's feeling like, oh man, how do I make this happen? Like he'll figure it out. You know, he's young, he's fresh out of college. Maybe he won't figure it out, but that's the type of thing that I think is really reasonable for a young quarterback to come in play like what half a season or less and not quite find his rhythm to make those big plays that totally transform games right because we're talking about check down check down check down from Tua well that's what almost all quarterbacks do for like 60 percent of the game and then they make a couple big plays 25 30 they break off a 40 yard play quarterbacks are not hucking the ball 80 yards every single drive I mean Mahomes, um, Mahomes is yeah, I mean, okay. Well, let, let me let me just game. let me just say one thing though, which is that because of the idiocy of the Houston Texans, where they gave the Dolphins two first round picks for Laramie Tunzel, and they also, you know, in, in conjunction with trading away uh, DeAndre Hopkins for less than a first round pick, um, the Dolphins now have the Thank number. Thank you for th- bringing that back up. It's just <laughs> insane when you say it like that. The Dolphins now have the number three pick in the draft, courtesy of the Houston Texans. If you think two is your guy, fine, stick with him. Draft Panay Sewell, give him some offensive line help because the, the, the Dolphins' offensive line sucks. But if you weren't convinced by two of this year and you really like Zach Wilson or Justin Fields, if either of them are available at number three, you can't rule out taking them. And trading Tua for you can get a first round pick for him from someone else. Yeah, you probably could. It you, probably wouldn't be a following season first round pick, but maybe like two years from now. Yeah, I'm. I'm not saying you have to do that if you're the Dolphins, but I think Tua did not show enough this year to mean you don't consider it. And you know, I I I think this is an error that a lot of franchises make at the quarterback position, which is that they draft a guy in the first round and they think we need to give him a chance to develop, see what he's going to be. But sometimes the jets ever made just curious before you finish your thought. uh, I think it is an error they made, but I don't think they made this error with Sam Darnold. I think, I I think if, I think if they don't take a quarterback this year, they will be making that error with Sam Darnold. Okay. Um, But you know, the quarterback position is so important so high leverage that you just need to maximize the probability that you have elite play there. And if it, if it's not working after a year, two years, you can tell with these guys, usually pretty quick, the great guys are good from day one and well, you know, not quite good quickly. Yeah. They, they get good quickly and they at least show glimpses that they're going to be good. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, you know, Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert have shown that this year. That's that's fair. Tua Tua did never really show game changing ability. I'll give you that. I'll yeah. give you that as a concern. And it's you know sometimes you have to cut bait sooner than you're comfortable with. 
And maybe this guy does go on to be good somewhere else, but you know, they're, they're good quarterbacks in the draft every year and the dolphins are not going to be, they, they have a really good defense. They have a really good program. They they're not going to get the number three pick next year. Right. So it's like right. when you have an opportunity to be really high up in the draft, take one of the top quarterback prospects, you have to really consider it. Even if you've already got a guy in your room that you recently took in the first round. That's a great point. And, and I actually, I'm surprised, but I agree with you 100%. Um, so let's talk about just a couple other quick playing games before we get into the picture. As I mentioned, the Washington football team needed to win to secure a playoff spot. They were able to do so. So the previous, uh, the win by the Giants earlier in the day became moot. Um, the interesting thing here was that Philly just put their backup quarterback. What was it? The third quarter, Sam, or the fourth quarter in a close they, game. They just basically were like, okay, we're done. Yeah. And I mean, it really did seem so Doug Peterson did say before the game, he wanted to get Sudfield some reps. But in the game, like when they're down three, like it's not like Hertz was playing lights out, but he was their only mm-hmm. offense. It really did seem like blatant tanking. Uh, and the relevant thing here was that uh, if they had won the game, they would have dropped from the fifth pick to the 10th pick. So it, it or the sixth pick to the 10th pick. So it was pretty high leverage. There was a lot of draft stock at stake. Um, and, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily going to fault them as an organization. Like, why is this no, it's different? the right thing to do yeah. organizationally? It's just annoying. It, it's the right thing to do. And, and it's hard for me to see how it's different than teams that are going to the playoffs resting their starters in week 17. It's that you're making a decision to be less competitive in one game for the benefit of your team in the future. Now, it, it's a bit of a different calculus because you're trying to be, be- uh, competitive in the same season. So you're still trying to win the Super Bowl, but you know, it's hard for me to fault the Eagles, but I also see why Giants fans are furious about it. I would be too, if I was a Giants fan, but let me just say this to, to all you Giants fans out there. And I do know a lot of you as I'm, as I'm from New York is that I feel bad for you guys. I was rooting for the Giants to make the playoffs. You know, I I don't hate the Giants. Like I hate the Yankees. They're, they're another New York team that if they're in the playoffs, I'm going to root for them. I don't, care about them like I care about the Jets, but you know, I'm in the root for the New York team. You guys were six and ten. Sorry. I don't feel bad for you. <laughs> like but to that point, <laughs> none of the teams from this division have yeah. gotten in because there were a bunch of I mean the Cardinals are better than every team in the NFC East. So if you want to talk about who should be mad, I should be mad that the Cardinals are not making the playoffs. And yeah, they had and this is what we were going to talk about next, but the Cardinals had the opportunity to make the playoffs by beating the Rams. They couldn't figure out how to score more than eight points. And I know that Kyler Murray got injured, but you have to be able to manufacture more than eight points with that much skill on your offense for them not to be able to do that against a Rams defense, which beyond the defensive line is a, a bit pedestrian. No, they, um, they were the best defense in football this year, the Rams. By what metric? Uh, by, by like, you know, efficiency, like yards allowed per play. Well, I view them as fairly pedestrian um, <laughs> because what I'm getting is that the actual, the New Orleans Saints enter the playoffs with the best defense. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Look, like I, I get that, that they had their opportunity to, but still, if somebody's going to be mad, it's going to be a, a good well, team from a different division in the NFC that didn't get to get in because it demands that one of the shitbox NFC East teams get to get in. Well, and here's the bigger reason to be mad about that game, if you're a Cardinals fan, is that Jared Goff also didn't play. 
So they're yeah. playing against the Rams backup quarterback. Uh, not to say that Jared Goff has been a, you know, a world beater this superstar, year. Superstar, yeah. Um, but you know that you know the Bears. The Bears had a win and get in situation against the Packers. They were not able to win that game. The Packers clinched the first round by, but due to the Cardinals loss, the Bears still got in as the seventh seed. Uh, and with that, do we want to just go through our playoff predictions? So, yeah, so I think what we should do is like, let's just go by seed. So let's like, and then we'll go uh, each division at each seed. So for example, in the first round, Chiefs and Packers are the one seed in the AFC and NFC respectively. They both have a bye. So I'm taking the Chiefs in their bye and I'm taking the Packers in their bye. Well, I mean, I if you weren't taking them, I'd be slightly worried for you. Uh, so, but with that- in with, the, Yeah, let's talk that, about 2-7 match. Let's go to the two seven matchup. So the first two seven matchup in the AFC is between the 13 and three Buffalo bills who won the AFC East this year and the seven seed Indianapolis Colts who went 11 and five. It's not often you seeing 11 and yeah, five, seriously. seven seed typically in the NFL 10 and six is very likely to get you into the playoffs, which is very interesting. This is the first season I mean, many years, eight and eight gets you in the playoffs. Yeah. Or at least nine and seven is going to give you a shot at that last wild card. And very interesting that this was the first year that the NFL moved to seven teams in the playoffs instead of six. And it ended up being good in the AFC because it would have been insane to seeing an 11 and five team miss the playoffs. I think the last time that happened was when Matt Castle was the quarterback for the Patriots and, <laughs> and they went 11 and five that year, but didn't make the playoffs. Um, and the, the it's Dolphins, funny because the AFC has four teams exactly at 11 and five. Yeah, and that's why this was such an exciting week, week 17, where the, the Dolphins ended up losing going 10 and 6, which again, in a typical year, that's getting you in the playoffs, but they end up the eighth seed, they miss it. Uh, but you know, who you have, uh Bills, Colts, the Bills are minus six and a half in this game. I have the Bills. Um, and I think Me the too. Colts are good. Uh, you know, I've been impressed with how they played. They're definitely a good team. They've got a really strong defense. Um, but Wow, the Bills are good. Yeah, like and Josh, I, Josh Allen's good. And there's something to be said. A lot of people are going to say, and I even thought this too when I first looked at the matchup. A lot of people are going to say, oh, there's an inexperience aspect here. Well, not really. Stefan Diggs, don't forget, already a superstar of the playoffs, has that on his resume. Cole Beasley, immense experience in the playoffs already. And Josh Allen, do not tell me that this man's about to slow down. He is on an absolute roll, and I think he is going to put on a show in the playoffs. I'm excited to watch them. In fact, they may be my favorite team in the playoffs to watch. There, It really pains me to say this because the Bills are in the AFC East. I have not liked them my whole life. But you said, you know, another New York football team, right? <laughs> They're not a New York team. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think Buffalo is? Yeah, they're a New York State team, but that's not New York sports. <laughs> um, I I was a, a huge non-believer in Josh Allen. I thought he sucked. And a lot of other people did too. And the jump I mean, he's, We both cast doubt on him earlier this season. The jump he's made from year two to year three is phenomenal. I I, I can't really remember anything like it. It's This guy is so freaking good. Like... You, like it wouldn't be crazy if you voted for him to win MVP this year. I think it's going to be oh. Rogers, 
But right. if you voted for Allen, I wouldn't call you crazy. Um, he can make any throw. Like his arm talent's insane. He's a threat running the ball. And his biggest question mark accuracy. I mean, he, he has so much touch now. He puts the ball on the mark every, I mean, the last five, six weeks, he just has not missed. He's playing better than any quarterback in the NFL. And he's extremely impressive. Hats off to Josh Allen, man. And I think this is actually interesting because you mentioned previously with Tua how often like when you see good players come into the league, they show flashes of like game-changing brilliance. And I think Josh Allen's funny because I'm not sure he really ever showed that. He certainly showed flashes of being like a good NFL quarterback, right? But I'm not sure I can really ever remember him. He has just taken over games this season. Right? He's always like, had the physical tools, though. He's That's the thing. Had the physical tools, no question. I well, we don't have to rehash Tua, but like Tua clearly can run and throw the ball pretty far. Like he has yeah. physical tools. But Josh Allen, from what he did last year, where you know he definitely could run and throw the ball, but he couldn't do it efficiently. Either one of them, he kept losing it no matter what he was doing. To go to this year, where he was actually extremely good at keeping hold of the ball and leading a team with a revamped offense to one of the best records in football. Yeah. Hats off to him. So uh, we, I think we got the same guys there. Um, the other two seven is the most boring matchup of them all. I'm absolutely disgusted by this matchup saints at two and bears at seven, the saints. If I could take him by 40 points, <laughs> I, I think about it. Yeah, Saints are minus eight and a half there. I think we're both we're both picking the Saints. Uh, Wait, is Drew Brees playing? He is. Yeah. yeah well, you best believe I'm taking a, a line of thirteen and a half for this game. All right. So I mean, Ed, so Aaron will be betting the Saints uh, the Saints spread there. Um, I yeah. I mean, there's not much to say. The Bears aren't very good, and the Saints yeah. are. Uh, so then the three, six matchup in the AFC is a rematch of week 17, except uh-huh. uh, this time the Pittsburgh Steelers will have their starting quarterback. It's going to be the 12 and four Pittsburgh Steelers who won the AFC North uh, after starting 11 and oh, though they went one and four to finish the season and they'll be playing the Cleveland Browns who for the first time since 2002 made the playoffs at 11 and five, the Steelers are minus three and a half favorites, but who you have in this game. So I want to preface it by saying like, I don't think three, six does it justice. Like to me, the way these two teams are playing, this is like a toss up. It's not just that the Steelers went one and four in their final five games. It's also that the Browns, I think went four and one, like they were really, really good in the last five games. They did lose to the jets though. They did lose to the jets, but but they also had no wide receivers that game because of COVID. So it's right. It's It's kind of a, like they're kind of on a roll and I could definitely see them coming through. But in the end, the difference maker for me is like, look, ugh, I hate saying this, but looking at the two teams, like the Steelers are a well-structured like organization that doesn't accrue a lot of penalties and does lead the league in sacks with TJ Watt and just does things by the book with a guy who is not an exciting or explosive quarterback by any means, but has won and high levels before. And the Browns, feel like they are just like sprinting down a hill. If you watch them play, I'm like watching them like, wow, they're going really fast. They're playing good football, but it feels like it could unravel at any second. They stumble and fall. 
And so if I'm, if I'm just talking probabilities, I take the Steelers here, but I could see it going either way. Yeah. I think this is going to be a really close game. I'm actually picking the Browns in this game. The Steelers, you know, got to 11 0 on the backs of their defense, which was just playing lights out incredibly, Mm -hmm. but they've had some major injuries on the defense, including Bud Dupree going out for the year. And they just haven't been the same team since then. And while their offense has certainly shown flashes of being like unstoppable for a half of football, they've also shown flashes of looking really bad. And, you know, Ben doesn't look great back there their offense relies a lot on their wide receivers winning one-on-one matchups. I don't think it's well schemed. And I actually think the, I think the Browns are really well coached team by uh, Kevin Stefanski. I think they just scheme a lot of guys open for Baker. Uh, Well, they have interesting plays. I'll I'll give them that, but I I don't know if that necessarily equates to well schemed. Yeah, fair enough. But you know, I, I think Baker's been playing better as of recently. Uh, and I, you know, I think this is the Browns' time. I think they're, I think they are the more talented team, and I think they're going to pull this out. Yeah, I, offensively, I certainly can't disagree with that. It's so hard, and this is just a general comment about football. But for me, it's so hard to like say who's the more like talented team because I can see it on offense. I understand it on offense, but I don't like. I can't really look at it at a defense and be like, Oh, this defensive unit is way more talented than this defensive unit. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's kind of harder. It's to a lot gauge. of, it's a lot of um, scheme, uh, but certainly offensively. I mean, the Browns have two guys that every team in the NFL would kill to have as their running back. Right. Like, yeah. and they have three palatable wide receivers, two super physical, good tight ends. Like they're, they're a really solid offense. Um, let's go to, uh, the other three, six matchup, which is the, which is the two teams out of the NFC West. One of them should have been the, well, I guess technically the Bears spot should have been the Cardinals, but one of them should have been the Arizona Cardinals. Um, but instead it's the Seahawks versus the Rams. This is another game where I actually don't think that the skill level of the teams is close. I think the Seahawks are like a far and away better team, but I've watched both of these teams play quite a lot this year. And I'm telling you that it's basically a toss up whether Jared Goff plays or not. There's something about the Seahawks playing the Rams where like, I don't know if uh, McVail like has their number or what it is, but it's a toss up. They just can't seem to pull away the Seahawks ever in this matchup. Yeah, I mean, I I could see either team winning. I th- as I said, I think the Rams have an incredible defense. Uh, Brandon, oh, you Staley's... took the Rams here? No, I'm taking the Seahawks. Oh, uh, me too, me too. Okay, Brandon, but you know, I think Brandon Staley's done an incredible job with that defense. The Jets are actually interviewing him for a head coaching position. Um, if Goff doesn't play, maybe they'll let someone else call the offensive play. <laughs> I, they will. Um, <laughs> it, if Goff That's serious if, for a moment, no, trust me, they will. If Goff doesn't play, then I think the Seahawks are favorite. If Goff does play, it moves to more of a toss up. But you know, at the end of the day, I think the difference maker in this game is going to be Russell Wilson, and that it's going to be close going in the fourth quarter, and Russell Wilson's just going to make something happen and win this game. Even though he really hasn't played that well as the last few weeks, I still trust him up there with any quarterback. Um, so I'm picking the Seahawks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I actually see – 
Well, no, you're right. There, there's no bigger difference making the rest. I have the Seahawks too, but don't sleep on what a big difference it is to have Chris Carson versus Cam Akers, right? Like Cam Akers has been useful at times and certainly may look as good as Chris Carson in this game because you're looking at probably the best defensive line in football versus one of the worst. Um, but like Chris Carson is a much better running back than Cam Akers. Um, so let's go four five. These are two super interesting matchups. Um, these, well, the, no, these are all good matchups besides the Saints Bears actually, but these four or five matchups are really good. So in the AFC, we have Titans at four versus Ravens at five. Um, this is a great game, but for me, actually the answer is fairly convincing, which is Titans. There's only one caveat here. So I say Titans because they've been all around very, very good. Uh, Derrick Henry has led the league in rushing by almost 500 yards over the season, which is just mind boggling to think of. Um, and Ryan Tannehill has been Ryan Tannehill, which is he's not flashy, but he's going to run a couple in. He's going to throw a good number in because people are biting on that run. Um, and he's going to run that offense super efficiently. That's Ryan Tannehill. And their defense has been hit or miss, let's say. So my one cat. Oh, and sorry, on the other end, the Ravens have been good in the sense that like their record is uh, 11 and five, which is good, no doubt. But Lamar hasn't really been there. He hasn't been the same passer that he was last year. He hasn't been the same runner that he was last year. They certainly have a better back in JK Dobbins than they had last year. Um, but not significantly. They're still running Ingram, Dobbins, and Gus Edwards with some type of rotation. They still don't have receivers. I don't think Hollywood Brown is a legit number one. You may argue that Des Bryant is like playing all right, which he is, but he's just not seeing enough targets to make a difference. I don't see how they put it together without a, a legendary performance from their defense, which brings me to my caveat, which is that the Titans can blow a game with anybody. They're going to score. But if their defense just doesn't show up, don't forget that even though Lamar has not been a stud this year, he is still the most well-equipped, talented football player on the field at any given time. He's the fastest. He can throw it hard. He can throw it accurately. He, he could put it all together and the Titans could get blown out of the water in this game. So I take him, but with that caveat. I think this is the first matchup we seriously disagree on. Uh, and I'm picking the Ravens here. And I like them a lot. And five, six weeks ago, I agree with what you're saying. The Ravens just don't look like the same team they were last year. But the last few weeks, and part of this might be that they've played a really easy schedule. But it just looks like something's clicked. It looks like they're back to where they were last year. Lamar's, Lamar's been more efficient passing He's been running more than he has earlier in the year. Like things worked. They ran for 350 yards in week 17. Uh, again, not against strong competition, but, but still. And I just think the Ravens, they were so good in the regular season last year that they, and then they imploded in the playoffs this year. I feel like because they imploded in the playoffs and they haven't been the same team, earlier in the season, everyone's kind of like forgotten about them, but this is still a very similar team to the team that was dominant in the, in the regular season last year. And 
I, I think, I think this is the year they show up in the playoffs. And, and again, I, I think these offenses are fairly similar. They're offenses that rely a lot on running the ball, though in different ways where Lamar is a big runner for the Ravens. There's their offenses that rely a lot on play action or like uh, for the Ravens, it's more like run pass options. Uh, they're offenses that are rely a lot on scheme. Yeah. But, and they're very productive when they can play within their scheme. Uh, but the Ravens defense, this, I think, is just much better. The scheme for the Ravens, by the way, is the pistol, and the scheme for the Titans is the is a single back or like an eye formation. Yeah. They only run one one set each one of them offensively. Uh, but I, I think the Ravens defense is much better, uh, and the Titans defense they worry me. Yeah, and which the, is fair. Which was my caveat, basically. But I just want to point out before we move on from this, I don't know what you're talking about in these last five weeks. Like, yeah, they ended the season five and zero, playing Dallas, Jacksonville, New York, Cincinnati, and Cleveland being the one legitimate win in there. But like those other four teams are not. New York was okay, I guess, but was playing without Daniel Jones in week sixteen. Like, that's the, not. But, but listen, off, but listen, the, but listen. Your point was that the offense was different. But I don't really see it. Besides for one game where Lamar threw for 163 and ran for 124, like they were pretty similar to the rest of the season. Lamar Jackson's high in passing is not in here. His, it's only his third highest mark in passing. His highest rushing mark is in here, but not by much. And with the exception of week 17, where they run ran for a ton of yards, but Jackson only threw for 113 yards. It's been so similar to everything else they've done. I don't think that in the playoffs they can get it done on the ground alone, even against the Titans semi-pedestrian run defense. And they've scored 34 or more points, five of the last six, four of the five weeks, including going over 40 twice. I mean, the offense, it feels Not like over 40. They, they hit 41 sure, and sure, went sure. over 41. But again, you're t- and one was against Cleveland in a shootout where they gave up 42 points. Don't forget. And then you're talking about the Dallas defense. What? Jacksonville defense. What? New York's defense. Cincinnati's defense. The Giants defense is good. The Giants defense is good. The Giants defense is good and it held them to 27 points. I don't think they beat the Giants with 27 points tomorrow. Let's just say I'm taking the over. Yeah, all right. We'll we'll see. I I think you're going to get madder at me as these picks go further. Uh (laughs) Um, Then the other four or five matchup is – the Washington football team against the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, Washington football team, of course, seven and nine, but they did win the division, so they are the the four seed. The Bucks, uh, of course, Tom Brady uh, with a, a bit of a weird season this year, where certain games has looked, you know, like the Brady of old, absolutely unstoppable with all those weapons in Tampa Bay, and certain games has looked like they just are totally unca- incapable of moving the ball. The Bucks are minus seven and a half. Um, I'm choosing the Bucks in this game, but with one caveat. Mm-hmm. Tom Brady, there's basically no bigger difference in a quarterback between how well he performs when he is pressured versus not pressured. When he has not been pressured, he's basically been up there with the best quarterback in football this year. When he's been pressured in his old age, when he can't move in the pocket as much as he can, he doesn't want to be taking these hits. He's looked really bad. Now, the last few weeks, the Bucks' offense has been unstoppable and Brady's basically been untouched. Mm-hmm. And those things go hand in hand. 
Washington football team, they can get a pass rush going. They have a good front yeah, four. They can definitely get a pass rush Chase, going. Chase Young is a game wrecker. So he's while, a boss. He's so good. Well, I don't think that their offense is just I don't think their offense can keep up with the Bucks offense. Their offense is simply not good. I could still see an insane defensive performance. I it wouldn't blow my mind if they pulled this game out, but I'm picking the Bucks. Yeah, so I actually picked Washington football team first, but then I, my exact thought was uh, you can't really go against Brady in like a favorite situation in the playoffs. And I guess now that you've mentioned all those things, you make a great point. Like we'll see whether it was Brady or the scheme, especially in the playoffs. Like this may be the best test yet of was it Brady or Patriots. Um, And you're right. I mean, he looks old out there. He cannot evade. He never could really evade pressure, but now he can't even duck somebody. He can't sidestep anybody. If somebody's coming towards him, the ball's leaving his hand and it's going nowhere because he, he doesn't really take that many sacks. He doesn't want to get hit. Um, and that forces him to make some early decisions, some bad decisions sometimes. And you're right. He really has been all over the place. He's had, you know, three games of four touchdowns and one game of five touchdowns, but he's oddly had a ton of two touchdown games, a zero touchdown game and two, one touchdown games. Like he, he's really been kind of average. He's had, multiple two he's had three two int games one three int game and he's only gotten out of a handful of games unscathed so he doesn't look um all around quite the same as he's been and i think he is the key to this game their wide receivers are only going to play as well as he throws them um and the washington football team could do a lot to disrupt their offensive game plan you're right that their defense is bad but with alex young in i think that the combination of mckissick barber if he plays um and t- uh mclaurin like those are good offensive players all around they're nothing crazy but they're good enough to score in an nfl game um against a defense that is not great against the pass so uh i have the bucks here but i agree with you wholeheartedly i think washington's in this game all right so let's go to the divisional round now and one thing we should note is that the nfl recedes every round so I guess it only matters for the divisional round, but basically the chiefs are going to play the lowest seed that wins next week. And then the, the remaining two teams will play each other. And then the Packers will also play the lowest seed that wins and the remaining two teams will play each other. So Aaron and I might have different matchups in the divisional round from our picks, but let's sort of just start with the AFC uh, chiefs game. So it's going to be for, I'm going to have the number one chiefs playing the number six Browns because they're the lowest seed I had winning. And I have uh, the chiefs pulling this game out. I mean, they're 14 and two this year. They've been the best team in football. It's Mahomes. They're better than the Browns. I'm picking the chiefs. Well, you're going to hate this, but I have the number one chiefs playing the number five Titans. And four I have titans. The, titans. the number four Titans, you mean? Number four Titans, I'm sorry. And I have the Titans upsetting here. Wow. Um, I know it's it's kind of crazy, but like I kind of wanted something interesting in this pick. And while the Chiefs are undoubtedly an amazing team, I just think that their defense is so susceptible to being beat up by the run. And I think you could see Derrick Henry go for 185, 215 yards in this game. You could still see Ryan Tannehill throw up for 150. And no matter how high octane that 
Chiefs offense is. They just may not be able to keep up in this one, which sounds crazy. But this is the one team that can do it because they do have that game-changing player on the ground. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not going to spoil my picks later, but I one thing I will say about the Chiefs that has me a bit worried is they've really been letting teams stick around this this year where mm-hmm. they've jumped out to early leads and ended up having to hold on tightly. Mahomes really hasn't played that well the last few weeks and maybe they sort of are already looking forward to the playoffs and they're going to turn it on in the playoffs. Like I'm not necessarily worried about them, but I will say they're not you know, humming on all cylinders as we come to the playoffs. Um, I would agree with that. So then the, the Packers and the NFC are the one seed. I think we both have them playing the Bucks yeah, as the I five do. seed. And I, I have the Packers winning this game. Rogers is playing at an MVP level. Absolutely amazing. They've got the balance in the offense with Aaron Jones, one of the best running backs in the league. They've got a really nice defense, especially the defensive line, the Zadarius Smith really can get to the quarterback. And if they can pressure Brady, I think he's going to have a really tough time keeping up with Rodgers in this game. Yeah. Zadarius Smith averaging 12 and a half or has total of 12 and a half sacks on the season. Good for tied for fourth in the NFL. I agree with you. Packers, I think actually take this game by a handy margin. Um, the bucks are a lot of flash and, and could Brady go bananas in this game and win? Yes. But do I see it as a likely outcome? Yeah. No. Rodgers still Tom Brady. So, so good. He's got enough around him right now. So now I have the number two Bills playing the number three Steelers in the other matchup. Um, And I have the Bills winning this one for all the reasons we mentioned previously, both about the Bills' strength and the Steelers' scariness and weaknesses right now. So my game here is the Bills versus the Ravens. I mentioned that I thought the Ravens had found something this last few weeks, that they've returned to the team that looks so, so scary last year and for that reason i'm picking the ravens to get on a little rung in the playoffs this is my upset here so i have the ravens upsetting the bills i think the bill the ravens have sort of they're the team that looks so good for two years got to the playoffs and couldn't quite break through the last two years i think this is the year they break through and maybe the bills take on the the persona of the ravens of the last couple of years where they're this sort of breakout team where it looks like the scheme's so amazing everything's working and in the playoffs they just things start to not click i think josh allen's lack of playoff experience might come to, to haunt him at some point in the playoffs not to say that lamar jackson's been great in the playoffs but i'm picking the ravens yeah and like i'm not mad about that i think like what you're describing is a totally reasonable scenario I just think you're putting so much stock in these games against the Cowboys, the Jaguars, the Giants, the Bengals. And I'm just looking at them as like, I didn't learn anything about this team. I don't know anything about the form they're playing, but you know, maybe you're right. That's a, that's a fair point because you know, the sort of the hit on the, the Ravens has been, well, when they can play their system, they're unstoppable, but when they fall behind, they, they can't keep, pounding the rock and they have to maybe come from behind. They've had trouble doing it. And I'm just betting on, they're going to be able to take that lead that Lamar is going to, going to finally figure that out. I feel like I, I I may be making a bit of an overreaction, but I just feel like, why are we sort of suddenly talking like the reigning MVP of the league is nothing. Yeah. And that's fair. That's totally fair. The other matchup I have is saints versus Seahawks. Um, I think you have the same one. That's right. This one's tough. But I have to take the Seahawks here. And the, and the difference does come down to quarterback. Uh, we already mentioned how great Russ is. But I do want to mention that 
Um, as pointed out to me by a, a big fan of the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees is playing with a weird football version of the yips right now. Um, he does look very scared to get hit in the pocket. Um, and for good reason, he just had two crap ribs, but it's tough to play, as we just mentioned with Brady, when you are flinching at contact, which is obviously the natural human emotion, but that is how he looked at least in the last uh, two weeks. Um, maybe I'm putting too much stock in that. Maybe he's just coming back and he's going to dominate this game. Certainly, I think New Orleans has the edge in terms of team. I think their defense is far better. I think their offense is similar. Um, and But at the end of the day, I, I think the Hawks end up actually getting on a little roll here and end up being able to take out the, the uh, Saints. We're, we're on the same page here. I also picked the Seahawks. And, and it's for similar reasons. Like Drew Brees just does not look like he's a hundred percent since coming back from, from these ribs. And even if he does maybe feel a hundred percent going into these games, I do think the, the, the weeks he was out is going to hurt in terms of chemistry with his receivers, things like this, the saints, especially because they, they did not overlap almost at all with Michael Thomas's weeks out. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think the saints, if, if, Drew Brees hadn't gotten injured. They had all season to keep building up to the playoffs. I think it's a different story, but I, I think that injury is really going to do them in, in the playoffs. And they're not, they're not going to be the sort of a hundred percent operating some of all parts team that they would have been without that injury. And I think they, they run into a, a problem here with the Seahawks. Yeah. So we're on the same page there. And then in round three, I have Titans versus bills, two teams that did not make your AFC championship series, but I'll just quickly say that I have the bills here. I do see them this year as that young team who gets a lot of fire under them and just rolls, just keeps on rolling, keeps on grinding and winning tough games. Um, and so I have them making it all the way to the super bowl this year. Yeah. So, I mean, I had the chiefs versus Ravens as my AFC championship game and you have the Ravens. Man. I, I'm riding the Ravens. I have the Ravens going to the Super Bowl. And for a lot of the same reasons that you had the Titans upsetting the Chiefs, which is that the Chiefs have a really weak run different defense. No team is better at running the ball than the Ravens, uh, mm -hmm. if you include Lamar Jackson as a runner. Um, and for sort of the same reasons that I said, I don't think it's crazy to pick the Chiefs to get upset. Of course, I wouldn't be surprised if Patrick Mahomes brings the Chiefs back to the Super Bowl. I think that is like probably the most likely outcome. But, you know, mm -hmm. I'm trying to have a little fun with these picks, pick an upset. And, you know, like I said, the Chiefs have not really been humming on all cylinders, even offensively, sort of the last, you know, five, six weeks. They, they seem like they're just doing what they need to to win games, but not looking like totally unstoppable and maybe they turn that switch on in the playoffs, but maybe they don't. And then I could see them getting upset, but I will say, you know, if the chiefs play their best football, I don't think anyone can beat them. Yeah. And I agree with you. Um, and then for the last one, I have Packers versus Hawks, which is, was a weird one for me. Cause immediately I'm like, the Packers are going to just win this game, like handily. And I do have the Packers as the winner, but the more I think about it, the more I'm like, this could be like a clash of Titans. Like this could be just a Russ versus Aaron Rodgers show. Russ does historically show up pretty well when faced with situations like this. Aaron Rodgers is tremendous, tremendous in situations like this. And, you know, they both have the tools around them to do it. Um, Seattle's defense has come into a point where they can make this game competitive. 
And, you know, I, I think it's going to be, if this is what plays out, this will be my favorite game of the playoffs, probably Packers versus Hawks, because I love both these quarterbacks, man. They're both so good. Um, but I, I do think the Packers take it. Yeah, that would be, a, if this happens, it's going to be a super awesome game. But, and, and I also think, I mean, man, a Russ Rogers duel would be so awesome to watch. I'm also picking the Packers. I think they're, they're, they have everything working for them. And I think more than any other team, they're putting it all together at the right time. They're playing their best football this season right yeah. now, which is uh, really important. So, so I'm also picking the Packers. Uh, so we both have the Packers winning the NFC. You have the Bills winning the AFC. I have the Ravens winning the AFC. Who is your Super Bowl winner? I have the Green Bay Packers, and we just explained why. They're really firing on all cylinders right now. They have a guy who, if you said he's the best quarterback in football – I would take it seriously, even though you could easily make the argument he's not. Um, they have enough tools. Their defense is picking up. They look good. Um, and, you know, actually, it, I don't think Aaron Rodgers has a Super Bowl. And it's he, has kind of a he has one. He has one. Oh, he does have one. You're right. You're yeah. right. But I, I think I think it's his time to win another one. I don't I'd love, I, I I'd love to see him get another one. I'm also choosing the Packers. Uh, right. So the Ravens uh, Cinderella run ends here, if you can call it that. Um, man, we both. <laughs> if you can call the uh, previous AFC Championship Series competitors a Cinderella yeah. run. Uh, so, man, we both have the Packers. Maybe we got to bet them. <laughs> yeah, interesting. We should check what their odds are. I think I think they're um, plus. I think they're plus four fifty, which is not. Awesome. That's not great. I don't but love it. The The Ravens are plus 1100. And I will admit I've already put a little bet on that. Um, well, tell me what the bills are. At the, actually, I have the bills to win the Super Bowl earlier in the season at like, let's see, I have 50 cents to win $14. So, so 28 to one. Yeah. Or 27 like to one if you're, yeah. It's not bad. That's pretty good. Yeah. You'd um, love to I get also, in a little I, situation I have, I have where you can the Hawks at 50 to one. So the Seahawks. Yeah, that's not because bad. after they lost those couple games, people were like, oh, they suck. Um, well, either way, we'll have to see what happens. We'll definitely keep you guys updated on the playoff picture. Next episode, we're going to come to you um, with whatever has happened in the MLB in this upcoming week, as well as some early reactions to the NBA picture. Because let me tell you, the NBA is shaping up to be fun. So I'm excited to go through that with you, Sam. Boy, Steph. I loved seeing Steph go off last night. People And you talked about it. You talked uh, about it on our last episode. You said the NBA is better when he can cook. And boy, did he cook last night. Yeah, and people were like shitting on him because the Warriors weren't doing well. And he just said, shut the fuck up. I'm going to drop 62. Um, just, okay. Uh, I just want to say this before we go. There's all these tweets on Twitter of like, um, everyone talking shit on Steph, like, LeBron ain't never had to play with a lineup this bad. And everyone's posting his like Eric Snows, Adrenas, <laughs> yeah. Sasha Pavlovich lineups. Like he went to the finals with this lineup when he was a third year player in the NBA. So what, th- this is, this is my problem with, with NBA fans. Like why does it always have to be either or like, why can't oh, we just such a good point? Why such can't we just, point. why can't we just love watching LeBron and Steph? Like I, like I love watching them both. They're both right. awesome. And so do I, but the answer is that the NBA at its core is a petty league, right? Like pettiness is ingrained in the NBA for the better, by the way, I love NBA personal drama, but I think it trickles to the fans where the fans like, no, my guy is the only guy. And your opinion is wrong. If you disagree. Yeah, that, that could be it. Well, 
The NBA season's been fun. The Knicks are in a close one right now. They're up two with three minutes left against the surprise Hawks. So hopefully they pull this game out. Um, but yeah, I think we'll we'll give our early season opinions on the NBA next week when we have a bit more sample size to talk about. Uh, hopefully we have a, a big time free agent signing by next week. I'm starting to get a little That'd be ner- nice. I'm starting yeah. to get a little nervous that George Springer has not signed with the Mets yet. I got There's a lot it. of other options out there for him. Uh, reportedly, it's down to the Mets and Blue Jays. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but you know, time's ticking, Steve Cohen. Let's see. Let's see him <laughs> sign. Um, sorry if you're my future boss. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else left to say, or is that no, it? No, I, I I can't follow that up, Sam. That's <laughs> that's absolute podcasting gold. Um, thank you guys as always for rocking with us. Um, I actually haven't said it this episode, so I just want to remind you, please, please, um, if you want to hear us talk about something, if you like what you're hearing, want to give us some feedback, find us on Twitter at the Alonzo bet, email us the Alonzo bet at gmail.com. And if you guys could like, like the podcast or like comment on it, subscribe to it on your podcasting services, whether that's Apple music, Spotify, um, Stitcher. I, I don't know what else people listen to podcasts on, but we're on everything according to Sam. Um, so if you guys could just give us the love, it would help us reach a broader audience of people, uh, who enjoy sports because we certainly do. So thanks for coming by, um, signing off for the Alonzo bed. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. Have a good night, folks.